You ever have those inner voices that are telling you you're not doing it right as a parent? You're not good enough. Have you ever thought about how your own childhood emotional wounds are affecting your parenting? Well, these are things that we think a lot about. And so we were so lucky to have this amazing conversation with Jenny Walters, a licensed marriage family therapist from Los Angeles, California. Oh, we got into it all. It got deep. It got challenging. But if you're in the mood to go there with us, then get a cup of tea, take a deep breath, find a comfy seat on the couch and join us for this amazing conversation. People come to therapy wanting us to get rid of their pain and they are at first disappointed to learn that it isn't about getting rid of the pain. It's it's how are we in relationship to it? What can I even say about Jenny Walters? We've been friends with her since our oldest son, Max, was born. I remember Jenny taking baby photos of Max. And at that time, she was an artist in Los Angeles. A couple of years after that, though, she found her true calling and true creative outlet which was in psychotherapy. And it was so cool to watch that journey and then to watch her blossom professionally. And now to have her on our podcast and to help us kick this podcast off, it's, it's just like the stars are aligning. So today, Jenny is a depth therapist who specializes in working with a highly sensitive people. And on this in this conversation, I found out that I was a highly sensitive person. Uh, she also works with adult children of narcissists and borderline uh, disorders. Her background is in Jungian psychotherapy. So she works with patients to heal deep unconscious traumas. She's a graduate of the Pacific Graduate Institute. She is founder and director for the Highland Park Holistic Psychotherapy Practice in Los Angeles. If you want to see more about her and what she does, you can find her at JinnyWalters.com. But let's just get straight into it. I hope you enjoy this as much as I did. So, Jenny, I have a a memory that you met Audra before I met you. Is that right? I don't think that's correct. I think I, you were both at the same barbecue where we met. <laughs> oh, that's right. We met but at we a barbecue. But we spent time together. I think you were off. Yeah, I don't have any memory of chit-chatting with Justin, but Audra was like a beacon of light in a very dark storm. I had just moved <laughs> to as Los she, Angeles. As she always is. Yeah. Yeah. No kidding. That's the truth. I was in a a horrible relationship, but that relationship brought me to that barbecue. And then I met Audra. Had a lot of those in my life where the vehicle was kind of gnarly, but it got me to these really great people. And Audra was really one of the first friends I made in Los Angeles. And she just took me, took me in. And uh, yeah, we became fast friends that day. I think you were one of my first friends too, because we didn't move to LA much. Didn't we move around the same time? I don't know. I got there in late 2007. So we were 2005. Yeah, I guess we were a little bit earlier. I just, it didn't seem like it. 
Yeah. <sighs> LA is a tough place to meet people and make friends, isn't it? At least for me, yeah. it was. I agree. I've moved a lot in my life. And especially back then, LA was the last big move for me, but it had been preceded by many years of big moves to different cities. And I would say that Los Angeles was the toughest landing and the toughest place to really build a life. And I, I think it took me a solid three years before I really felt at home there and felt like I had a community and I belonged and um, and that's not uncommon. I hear, I get a lot of transplants in my practice and my therapy practice and they, it's tough. It's a tough one. So I try to normalize that for people. I'm just like LA is kind of hard to land in. Okay. So here's my question. Was LA the impetus for you wanting to become a therapist? Maybe. Yeah. I mean, I think LA was the final frontier of me having to confront things. Uh, you know, prior to being a therapist, I was teaching photography and art as an adjunct professor, which is a a racket that's very difficult to survive in. There's no money. You're constantly hustling for work. So I was doing like the starving artist thing. But the truth is I really wasn't making art anymore. I was just trying to make a living. So I was pretty unhappy. And then I moved to Los Angeles. It was kind of a Hail Mary. People ask why. And I, I wish I had a reason. I just felt like I needed to go to Los Angeles. But really, everything in my life said this is a terrible idea. It was really hard. But now looking back, I'm so glad I did because you know, um, all my dreams came true, but they, just, they, weren't, they weren't dreams that I knew I had. So I was very attached to an idea of the way I thought my life needed to look, uh, which involved having a successful art career, marrying a man, you know, having um, a family. Uh, this is what I thought it needed to look like, but my life was not going that way. I was very unhappy. I was miserable. I was broke. And I started to just, also my body, I started to get sick. I started to, I developed an autoimmune condition. My body started to break down and it was really just, my life was trying to shake me awake into some other knowing about what my calling was. So I started getting acupuncture every week to try and get relief from the physical pain of this, um, at that point kind of, well, it was diagnosed, but I didn't know how to treat this thyroid uh, disorder that I had. And my acupuncturist also did energy healing, and I actually was really fascinated by it. So I started to study energy healing with her just on the side and uh, got really into that. Started, I've always been interested in self-development, self-help. I was always the, reading the self-help books, and you know, so I was always interested in psychology. But I just started to reconnect to this part of myself uh, that had this inkling that I was being called to the healing arts. And I mean, it's not a fancy story, but I started to Google our good friend, Google took me to Pacifica graduate Institute, where I saw that you could study psychology through the lens of the imaginal and through the lens of myth and metaphor and psyche. And uh, I get chills thinking about it because that's exactly why I wanted to make art was to create meaning making and try to understand these um, bigger questions. That's why I made art. And so I thought, oh, well, if I can get the same uh, itch scratched, but actually make a living as a therapist, wouldn't that be nice? You know, so that was kind of a what got me to, to enroll at Pacifica. But I wasn't really sure until I started working with clients. And then I was hooked. That was when I was like, oh, my God, this is amazing. And it was so much more satisfying than 
art making because there was an instant um, connection and instant um, moment of understanding and just all that stuff you want your art to do, but you don't ever get, if no one looks at it, that doesn't happen. <laughs> so that was really exciting. So that was just after I got started working with people, I was hooked and that was my journey. Mm. So Jenny, you're not a parent yourself, um, but you are passionate about family, mental health, parent, mental and emotional health. Um, what is your connection? Like how, how does that fire you up? Yeah. I'm not a parent to human children. I do have two fur babies. Um, <laughs> and, uh, what are their names? June and Ohi. <laughs> and, uh, they are very special snowflakes. Um, very different animals, but anyway, uh, well, so yeah, having a family wasn't in the cards for me. I met my wife, um, late in my thirties and I've always been a bit of a late bloomer. And so we wanted to spend, we were really wanting to spend time just the two of us. And then it was too late. <laughs> and so, uh, we, we decided not to have a family, but we are really, dedicated to our chosen family and our chosen family is filled with lots of children. And these kids are a really important part of our lives. Like yours are part of that chosen family, <laughs> but my dedication to it and my interest in it is that I think if we can start to help children and families understand their internal experiences and help them make sense of it and start to value that as a culture that we could change the world. So when parents are doing their own internal work, they are in turn helping children make sense of their lives and their worlds, which are not going to be free of suffering, as you two know, as much as we'd love for that to be the case. It's just not how it goes for humans. And when we avoid it, when we pretend it's not there, we don't help. We are not helping anything. And we're actually really traumatizing and confusing kids. And so when we can be courageous and brave and look at our own stuff and help our children understand and look at their own suffering, we're less likely to be acting it out unconsciously out in the world and we're less likely to be jerks. <laughs> and I think that we can, I don't know, I think we can change the world. So I think it starts young. So I'm, I feel very passionate about that. Mm, I've found that personally for myself that uh, I, as a parent, for so many years was just working out a lot of my own issues out on to my kids. And it was like um, over the past few years realizing, wow, my own mental and emotional health and wellness is uh, absolutely crucial <laughs> in raising these, these kids. So they don't pass down what was passed down to me. Um, yeah. yeah. Can I, yeah. Can I add to that? Because it really strikes me as a powerful paradigm shift in, in parenting and our approach to being in family and being in community. So you are in family, Jenny, fully with your chosen family, you're, you're, you're being in family in the space. And, you know, we, I think this would come naturally to think, yes, I potentially suffered from significant trauma. Maybe I was abused. I will, the buck stops here. I will, you know, work hard to make sure I don't abuse my child. Right. I can, I, I've, I've heard, um, I've heard of this, you know, line of thinking before, but to take that out into 
then instead of like, okay, maybe it's not, a, a, you know, completely abusive, my, my um, acting out of my stuff or, or anxieties, my anxiety insecurities. or whatever it might be, it may not be abusive, but am I setting up my child for s- success or my family for success? Am I creating an environment of flourishing? You know, it's, it's, it's almost like, uh, like you're in preventive health to some degree, you know, helping people live their best lives and do that in family and therefore changing the world because we are changing the way we are, are doing this together. And yeah, yeah, you're not, you're not damaging your kid. Well, I mean, we all, we all have our, our damages and hurts, I guess, but it does seem like a beautiful, I mean, it's a beautiful mission and a beautiful vision. And one that really excites me to hear you talking about it because it's it's so positive and proactive. Well, thanks. Yeah, I mean, I think we're becoming more evolved, whereas, like you said, it may have been before so overt. Well, I was abused. I won't abuse. I think we're getting into a much more nuanced understanding of mental health and, and wellness, which excites me because you know, in my former life as a photographer to make ends meet, I had a photography business where I photographed babies um, and children. And so I worked with a lot of families in that way. And what I noticed was that there were a lot of parents who were trying to parent differently than they had been parent parented. So it, where they had maybe been overly frustrated by their parents, maybe a lot of rules and, and not a lot of um, building up of self-esteem and a lot of affirmations. I noticed a lot of parents going this extreme other end where if the child was experiencing any discomfort at all, everything had to stop. We had to get the, the kid comfortable again. And and now that generation is showing up in my room, in my therapy room, and they have a different confused relationship with suffering. So what strikes me there is like the wanting to protect your your kid from any discomfort at all is just working out those issues. I mean, it seems to me it's a product of the parent or oneself not being comfortable with distress, not being able to regulate one's own emotions and deal with challenges. And so now you're going to protect your kids from challenges and from stress and you know, from difficult yeah, emotions. Exactly. I mean, the kind of therapy I do is sometimes called integrative therapy, you know, a depth therapy, integrative therapy. And the idea is that we're integrating all parts of ourselves. And I like to think too, that we need to integrate all parts. We want to get the insides and the outsides lined up. So we're in our integrity and, but the, you know, the outsides as well, in the sense that we can that all things can be here. So good and bad feelings can be here, not just good feelings, but good and bad feelings that we can grow tolerance and resilience around that. And we can learn how to help our kids, you know, know when they feel bad, it's okay that you feel bad. Um, I'm here to be with you while you feel bad. I'm not going to try and fix it. I'm just going to, you know, and, and, and we're going to get to the other side of this. That is so empowering. I have so many young adults that have shown up that were, there is such an aversion to any kind of negative quote, negative feeling or distress or this pressure to be the, the, the level of perfectionism that's showing up. And I mean, not to get, you know, political or anything, but it just speaks to me of this sort of narcissism in our culture of something, something matters and something doesn't it's, it's good or it's bad. You're a winner or you're a loser, you know? And it's like, we just miss out on our humanity 
and we miss out on each other. And um, it's a, it's a split, you know, a psyche a split in our psyche, which always is pain and suffering. And so if we can integrate all those parts and help our kids integrate them all, um, I mean, what a world we'd live in, you know? This is something that's very real for me when we, so we recently moved to Savannah, Georgia. Yes, we, <laughs> we lived <laughs> in Southern California for 15 years and we made this big move and it was, you know, for the kids, it was a really big move. And I was feeling a little, I don't know, <sighs> guilty for pulling them out of their environment that they grew up in and moving all clear across the country because Audra and I thought it'd be cool and fun. And so when they were, would ex, would express distress around this, uh, I was experiencing myself like, Oh no, let's just, let's just uh, distract ourselves or let's um, let's bribe them or let's <laughs> do it. Let's, is there any way can we could just make these challenging emotions stop? And then because of the work I've been doing over the past couple of years, I realized like, Oh, I like, I need to do exactly what you're saying. Like, let's make space for this. Like, let's just, mm-hmm. let's, let's, let's make space for feeling sad Let's make space for being angry and let's just, Mm -hmm. let's just open up (laughs) and just Mm -hmm. let it be here. And it was amazing. Once I kind of let down my guard Mm -hmm. around that and just let the feelings be expressed, we could move them. Mm -hmm. Like they, like they just, they just kind of needed to be moved and just processed Mm -hmm. and expressed. And then, oh, it's a beautiful thing. (laughs) I mean, and that was it. (laughs) Do you remember it was at dinner just last night? we were talking about this and Max said that he just doesn't like anything new. Mm. And one thing that came up that I asked him, Mm. it wasn't that he just doesn't like anything new. It's that everything new that's happened to him since he was four and a half has been kind of bad news. Mm -hmm. Been really hard. And just for him to be able to let it out without judgment yeah. And for us to get curious mm-hmm. ab- uh, yep. about it. Yeah. And yep. to name that and acknowledge it. And so yeah. now we can have a more nuanced understanding of it so mm-hmm. that, oh, maybe this is this is a different kind of new um, than the kind of new that you've known. And then just acknowledging how hard transition and changes. Yeah. And, you know, also, side note, you know, I work with a lot of people who would identify as highly sensitive, mm-hmm. which is actually a a legit research classification that some people are, you know, more sensitive in that they are receiving more kind of sensate information in lots of different ways all the time. And transition's really hard for those folks. Like it's really, um, it feels really uncomfortable. Mm. And instead of it being shamed, you know, we can just acknowledge it and know that yeah. when there's a transition coming, we need to take our time with it. We need to be tender. We need to be talking about it. And that it just, like you said, Justin, when you came out of the, the block around, it, it's like coming out of the resistance, it just lessens the pain so much. So what a great insight for you guys to have around him and as a family, um, his experience. Uh, how does, how does one know if one is a sensitive individual? Cause I, I might be one. You've always self-identified <laughs> as one. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah. Yeah. Um, it's a great question. Okay. So, um, have you been called oversensitive your whole life? Audra, what do you think? You've called yourself sensitive your whole life, but I don't know that you 
Happen. I think I've been able to hide it. Called you know, like, uh, I like find find ways to cope. I mean, I found you to be triggery, if you yeah. will, around yeah. me. <laughs> Do you, yeah. Are you sensitive to um, lights and sounds? Do you uh, <laughs> like, for example, I cannot tolerate. My wife makes fun of me. I cannot handle overhead lighting. Like, oh my it, god, me too. Like right it, now, I'm just. <laughs> I'm just dealing because I knew that we would. Jenny, have to deal he turns with off all the lights. I go around the house. He prefer for us to live by stuff. maybe one candle <laughs> that, that we me, carry yeah. around, and then you and know? then I rationalize it by saying, "Well, no, we're saving electricity, or we're, we're saving <laughs> circadian the rhythm, or global yeah. global climate change." But it's really that yes, overhead lighting. Just it. So that what you just named right there is that you have this heightened sensitivity to light and then there's there's this shame around it. So we have to rationalize it to the yeah. end. So that is a great way of telling if you're a highly sensitive person is that that's a really unconscious experience for a lot of um, uh, people who are HSP because it's like it's different. It's, it's, we only, it's only about 20 percent of the population have this sensitivity and mm. um and I don't think it's like better or worse. It's it's just different. It just it's just a different way of of receiving and processing. We just tend to process. Um, and when I say this, I feel like it sounds like it's. I mean, it's better, but we just process a little more intensely, a little more mm. deeply. And um, it sounds better. Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, but it's a really. It's actually a real pain in the butt. I mean, it's. And for a lot of us, you know, I mean, I can say a, a trajectory for a lot of us is just a lot of anxiety. Um, a lot of over-identifying, like when, when we feel something, we assume it's ours. And so a lot of the work around being a highly sensitive person is um, learning how to identify what's yours and what is something that you're picking up on. Mm -hmm. And then a lot of processing needs to be a big part of your existence. Um, Oh, wow. Okay. So we, uh, we are going to have to cut this part short because I totally want to talk about this and make it all about me. Um, No, but it sounds like this is like a, this is a a bigger topic to talk about. One thing that really strikes me though, is not to get too granular here is that you, you've never struck me as somebody who um, is completely empathetic well, like when it comes to other people, no, it's coping where it's like, I'll just shut myself. Oh, off. you just shut it down. Yeah. 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 I, but I, wow. what I identified when you said not sure what's mine was others. There are some documentaries that I will watch that will make me just really feel like, Oh my God. Like, am I maybe. Oh, so, which one was the last one? Yeah. This, uh, with this HBO documentary about this cult in Albany, the, the Nexium. Yes. Oh my God. I, and I was such watching it and I, and, Oh my God. <laughs> and it just messed, messed me up. I was, I was, I, or no, about 30 years ago that are 25, no, 20 years ago, there was this, um, my, it was a documentary about this guy in Wisconsin who made horror movies. Um, oh, uh, the like real, the real like low grit, like yes, low budget and ones. His what was it? Uh, um, I remember this movie. The, yes, what was? Didn't he funny? work at a cemetery, like cleaning up <laughs> yes, poop and stuff? Yes. Like people poop in cemeteries, yes. and it, yeah. And the running joke throughout it is that he he was pronouncing this word incorrectly. What was it? The coven. Co- coven. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, that's coven. it. <laughs> yes. That's it. I was like coven. No, no coven. <laughs> And I remember at the time I was watching this, I think I had just graduated undergrad and I wasn't sure what I was going to do with my life. And 
that movie messed me up for days. I was like, I'm going to be him like that. And it, <laughs> I, it was weird. Like how, I, yeah, Justin. Yeah, we need to do a separate combo about that. That's totally that was just <laughs> constantly projecting yourself into other people's lives and believing that that is going to be your life. It's yes, like that was yes. like my favorite pastime for most of my childhood. Oh my god. Oh, okay. So one more thing. What about showers? Is it harder to get it like just right where like hot and cold? You're like, oh, it's too hot. That's too cold. That's too hot. That's too cold. Like like our like our right temperature is just so finely tuned. Yeah. I mean, that can definitely be a sensory, a sensory thing. Like a, a touch thing can be something that is, is up for you in terms of how you have your sensate experience um, or uh, sounds. I like certain sounds are really, I mean, so there's lots of, di- it, it looks different for every person. And that's why it's really important to, I'm actually working on a course about this. Mm, um, right, we got to get this on the family. I know, <laughs> I hope to get it finished soon. It's called the sensitive uprising. Cause I'm just like, cause if I sensitive, if sensitive people can, can understand this, this part of themselves, it turns out studies show that the highly sensitive folks are actually really incredibly resilient. They mm. make good leaders Ooh, what? because we're really good at listening for nuance and, and having those kind of more um, in nuanced um, insights and stuff. So, but usually we're so overwhelmed that, and we have no idea how to navigate the sensitivity that we're just, you know, rocking in a corner. Oh, I love you this. Know? I'm so glad that we could take this little detour. Maybe there are parents out there who are recognizing this and, and yeah. Oh, I'm just, yeah. And recognizing it in their kids. Mm -hmm. Cause Mm -hmm. I mean, I, you know, I grew up in the seventies and the eighties. So like I was always told I was oversensitive. I mean, this was not in any way valued at all in my family. So, Jenny, I I wanted to ask, uh, you know, in the therapeutic, psycho-emotional health world, it seems to me that, like, pretty much every major issue is just childhood wounds, like childhood emotions. In your experience, does everything just really go back to childhood or is there more to it? I think a lot does. I think there's more to it. And, and, and people will have different opinions about this. What's sad is that that what you just named is what keeps people from going to therapy because they think that we're just going to sit and vilify their parents. Um, and again, it's about having a more holistic understanding of your experiences. I'll just go through the things that I think make up what, what shows up in my therapy room. One is intergenerational trauma. So we know trauma gets handed down uh, in your DNA. So you're going to show up into your life with trauma you didn't actually experience firsthand, but it's actually in your body. That's a piece of it. And that, of course, can extend to um, the trauma, the collective trauma, racism, uh, patriarchy, you know, uh, white supremacy, like all that. I mean, so that's in your body. Then there's, sure, there's the childhood experiences that you have. And a lot, sometimes those aren't actually what you would think of as trauma. And I have a great example. So when I was studying EMDR, which is a trauma therapy called, it's a eye movement desensitization reprocessing. It has a very sexy title that no one can remember. Um, 
But basically what we learned is that when we uh, activate a certain part of your brain while we're remembering uh, traumatic experiences, it reprocesses it and it, it, it discharges it from your body and you no longer have that trauma response, that fight, flight, freeze. So it's, it's a game changer and it's amazing therapy. But when I was studying it, one of the stories they told was about this man who was deeply phobic of shoes. And, uh, which is a strange, you know, it's like, that's hard to be afraid of shoes. That's a tough one. And when they were doing EMDR, he, and he'd been to so many therapists and, and phobia therapists and, you know, nothing helped. Well, when they did EMDR and they started going, uh, getting into his, 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 uh, memories and he was just kind of a free associating to memories. He went back to this memory when he was five years old, his grandma died and he asked mom, where did grandma go? And she said, the angels took her soul up to heaven. And as a five-year-old, he thought a soul was the soul of the shoe. Oh, and my he God. made an association with that and death. And that got stored in his memory network and in his body and carried forward into this deep phobia for 30 years. And, and then when they could oh clear God. that with the MDR, he was no longer afraid of shoes. That's not something you would, I mean, the parent didn't do anything wrong there. I no. mean, that's a perfectly reasonable thing to tell a five-year-old, but in terms of letting parents off the hook, mm. we are humans raising humans. Mm. Amen. And it is every human being's, I think, job to work through your emotional uh, difficulties, experiences, and sufferings. And there is no way to raise a child without them experiencing suffering. So just let yourself off that hook. Absolutely. You know, I mean, certainly we can take responsibility for our stuff and and not be, you know, harming them in overt ways, but there are ways in which kids are going to feel hurt and, and powerless that we couldn't predict, we couldn't control. So just to let people off the hook that, uh, there is no way to raise a child without pain. <laughs> and like, can we just like breathe a sigh of relief there? Right. And that, and that, yeah, that, that pain is a part of life and we're bringing kids into this world. It's a part of humanity. <laughs> I think it's so important, Jenny, too, because so often parents are in so much pain seeing their child in pain yeah. that they want to relieve their own pain. Not just yeah. a child's pain, but they don't want to have to go through seeing their kids go through the typical normal things in life, the mean girl syndrome and the, you know, yeah. not having any friends, whatever it might be, the normal things. Yeah. But these are not things for us to manage in, in, in that way of, of preventing them, you know, right. or uh, removing every obstacle. It's, it's how do we process these obstacles together? Exactly. I mean, I once met with a, a therapist and he was kind of this older surfer slash psychoanalyst guy, like very California therapist. <laughs> he was probably in like his seventies. And he said, you know, people come to therapy wanting us to get rid of their pain. And they are at first disappointed to learn. We, we, we teach them how to suffer that it isn't about getting rid of the pain. It's, it's how are we in relationship to it? When you try to eliminate the pain and suffering, you also eliminate your experience of joy because you can't cut off one end and not the other. And so what we end up doing is living on this little island of a very limited amount of emotionality. And what's astounding to watch with clients is, and it was true for me too, that when I could allow these other harder feelings to be here, more joy showed up as well. And I started to have a more expansive you know, experience. I've experienced so. that as well. 
Oh my gosh. Yeah. And I, I so identify with the patients who, who are coming in and have, uh, you know, issues with their parents and are bring a lot of, you know, um, energy ar- ar- around their own childhood. And, uh, I certainly, although I love my parents and they know that, um, I, Dealt with a lot of that. And uh, one therapist I worked with told me, and this was a game changer for me, that there was nothing that my parents today could do or say to fix any of that. There's nothing. Mm-hmm. And that and that all I needed to do is grieve. Mm-hmm. Just grieve like that, what, whatever happened to that four-year-old, whatever happened to that eight-year-old, that 13-year-old, grieve it. Mm-hmm. There's not, there's nothing they can do. There's no magic words they can say. There's no, because it's gone. It's done. That was in the past and you just need to grieve it. And I was like, Oh wow. my God, like what a game changer for me in my relationship with my parents and my childhood emotional wounds. <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, grieving is such an integrative process because it, it it's an acceptance of death and a processing of it. And, and, you know, it's like the process I see is people come in and they, they're, they, I mean, not for everyone, but a typical one can be, I don't want to talk about my parents. They were amazing. They did the best they could. There's this fear that if we, if we talk about what hurt that we're making them all bad. So we've got to have them all good. Okay. Then we start to open up and then we go into, then we flip and we're in the all bad place. How could they do that? They're horrible, you know, and then we allow them to start to be humans and we start to know about their compassion. We start to have compassion for them without disowning our experiences. And then it's like, it can be this more integrative place of like, okay, they were humans. Yes, they screwed up. But they also, I can see their own trauma and, and you know, yeah. and I can, I can hold yeah. it all. And that's a lot to hold. It's complex. And I don't know, like right. I, if you look around our culture right now, people don't like to hold complexity. They want it to be black and white. They want it to be right and wrong. And it's like this work, it, this is it's just not the truth. Of it's how, not the truth. It'll mess <laughs> you up. Right? Yeah. Forget right. that. Yeah. Stuff. <laughs> and it keeps you, it keeps you in deep, deep pain. When things have oh. to be split apart and and all or nothing like that, and it and it keeps one from being the best parent that they can be. Like, yep. this is this is not a game for black and white thinking. Yeah. And Jenny, do you see that pain to be so painful that it leads to potentially for many people the desire to control it, numb? Oh yeah, hold together, and that very often leads to the lawn mowering. You know, the control of the entire environment. Yep. Try to keep the pain that is inevitable in this way at bay, but it's always there. Absolutely. And, you know, and, and I can say I have a lot of compassion for that response. You know, alcoholism is up right now. Mm-hmm. You know, drinking, I mean, we are in a moment of something is out of our control. Yeah. And a lot of people got no help knowing how to be in relationship with something like that. And so, yeah, numbing, um, dissociating. I mean, like we were talking about a sensitive people, like I'm the same way. I tend to just, dis- like, just be like, bye, <laughs> just, I'm <laughs> out of here. My therapist calls it the schizoid skedaddle, um, <laughs> uh, which little therapy uh, lingo there, but, um, but yeah, absolutely. And the controlling, the anxiety of needing things to be perfect, needing things to be on a set trajectory, 
Um, that was a big piece of pain in my life was that my my life path has been very secure, circuitous. And I had so much shame around that, that I should have known what I wanted to do. I think we're coming out of wow. this as, mm-hmm. as people have more complex career paths. But, you know, I was in the generation where I was like, yeah, you can be a barista in your 20s, but then you got to like pick something and go with it. And I didn't, you know, I was all over the place, a lot of pain in that. So, yeah, I would, I think that's true. Jenny, I wanted to talk about that. Actually, I think that um, we have some questions coming up um, more about emotional health and parenting, but I'm going back to your story. I just find it to be so powerful because when we just talking to you just now, like this is you through and through the you I've always known, but I've also known you in different places with different careers. And, and I feel like we've learned so much together and we've grown Mm -hmm. so much together. Mm -hmm. Um, Yet this is a you I've always known. This is, this is like the you that that's always been there, always been my friend is like, you sort of unlocked the, the box and, and it's all there. Um, And one thing I remember it really vividly was processing with you, your art career and the fact that the performance of artists in a fine artist, because you're, you're a fine art photographer in, in many ways, in many things, right? And this is one of the things you are an incredible photographer, not just of children and babies, but fine, fine art. <laughs> and, um, and how challenging it was to have to perform this perfection driven persona and life mm-hmm. and all yeah. of the requirements that went with that never ever sat with you as I remember and correct me mm-hmm. if I'm wrong. And then I remember there being like guilt around that because you're kind of supposed to mm-hmm. want yeah. to lean into that as an artist. And then I remember getting in, you introduced me to Brene Brown actually. And I feel like she like broke open for all yeah. for so many of us to say, wait, let's, let's talk about perfection <laughs> openly. And mm-hmm. so is this a part of your Genesis? Because I feel like there is very much an intuitive spiritual aspect when you talk about energy work with this, that this has always been there for you. I feel like I, I've so valued our time together wrestling with all of this. And you, in many ways, followed your gut and intuition mm-hmm. down this path and have used this experience to kind of open up this space moving yeah. forward. Do you have any reflections on that? Am I, am I right about, uh, yeah, about you're totally that? right. <laughs> well, and first of all, that's what you just described is, is, is why we're dear friends is that there's a soul connection that I feel like we have that, that you could see that in me when I couldn't see it in myself. Mm. And when I was in a hot, really a bit of a hot mess there. I mean, let's be honest that you've been very generous in how you described it, Audra. <laughs> like, you know, I was, you, know, you didn't feel like a hot mess to me. I mean, <laughs> well, I felt like it for sure, inside. but not a mess. I mean, it was, yeah. it was the struggle was real. It's yeah. like very real. objectively real to me, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But I think the evolution for me has been, and, and I think this happens in therapy a lot is I was very attached to a concrete understanding of my life and that it needed to look a certain way. And it was a very limited, uh, a very limited um, imagining. It wasn't even that imaginative, but it was, yeah, it was visual artists in the fine art world, which is, you're right. It never jived with me. It was never who I was. I mean, it just requires a certain uh, persona to, to, to really succeed in that world that it just wasn't, it just isn't who I am. And as I, as things shifted, I started to trust the 
the unseen world a bit more, you know, that the, the intuition, the knowing, uh, I mean, the spiritual, you know, has been a big part of that for me. And that's what I noticed with clients is like, they come in and they are like, okay, I just need to find the right partner and the right job and I will be happy. And then I have to give them the bad news of like, it just doesn't work that way because I, I sit with people who have the right job and the right partner and they're miserable. And when you're trying to force those concrete pieces around, it's very hard to push concrete. But when you start to get the these interior pieces understood and in connection with soul's calling, and that's what I meant when I was saying like doing the therapeutic work is the same feel as what I was trying to get in art making. And and who like if I'm in the feeling of my soul's calling, who cares what it looks like if it's being an artist or being a therapist? You know, it's like if I'm happy. <laughs> Who cares? Oh, and it's incredible that you tapped into that. Like one one thing, like I, I'm I'm in awe of it because one thing that seems to be potentially a really big challenge for people is that when you are good at that thing, that doesn't feel right. So you can yeah. get by, you can get by doing it, but it doesn't feel right, and you just know on your intuitive level it's not the right like way. Yeah. It's not the right right way to manifest this um, or or to live this part of yourself, right? Yeah. So how do you trust that? And therefore, as parents, I think one thing that gets really challenging, that's hard enough with us, right? But then as a parent, you end up in the space of like, what do you want to do with your life? <laughs> I don't care who you are, right? What do you want to do with your life? Um, what are your interests? You want to cultivate these things and tie them into jobs. And there is there is challenge in in that because you don't want to pigeonhole, you want to teach that intuitive knowing, mm-hmm. how do you do that when you don't know that for yourself or you're just trying to uncover that? Great question. I mean, how is, I mean, it's rhetorical, right? I don't have to yeah. answer that. Oh, too. Yeah. yeah, no, no. <laughs> how do you do that? I mean, I think you, I think you pose, you start by posing the question. I mean, you start by noticing your own experience so that you aren't projecting it onto your kids. Yeah. Um, you know, and also, letting your kids be different. You know, my wife and I've been talking a lot lately about the concept of fruit smoothie and fruit salad. And this comes from a friend of mine, Annette Leonard, who she actually has a podcast called chronic wellness. And it's about helping people with um, chronic illness live in a state of health. But anyway, she can't remember who said this. So if anyone knows who said this, (laughs) I'm all about giving credit where credit is due. It'll be in the show notes. (laughs) Yeah. But it's about like this idea of when we all need to be exactly alike. And I think parents can do this with kids where we want our kids to, to be how we think they should be. And oh it's usually is something to do with us. And so mm. we're in this, we, we, we're insisting on this fruit smoothie experience and we really want to be a fruit salad where we're, Hey, we're all in the same bowl, but like you're pineapple and I'm mango and I can have, you know, and sometimes I don't like pineapple, <laughs> you know, but like you still get to be here. So can those, can your kids have a different experience than you? And also, can we not put pressure on kids to live a corrective experience for us? Oh, beautiful point too. <laughs> you know, like, I, I made this mistake. I don't want you to make that mistake. You know what? Right. They get, they're going to make the mistakes they're going to make. And, and kids know that very often. I mean, they will, I remember saying to my parents, I've, my kids have said to me, well, I need to make the mistake so I can learn. Yeah. Wow. Wisdom. I mean, it's true, right? It's like, we can we trust in our okayness 
even in the midst of mistakes, even in the midst of bad or hard feelings, even in the midst of suffering, can we know about some level of okayness and connectedness? And this is where like the spiritual part comes in for me is like, there's, you know, I'm here living this life as a human on this planet. And I also feel, you know, like I am you and you are me. It's like, we are connected. So can I hold both of those? And in that there is an okayness yeah. um, that, that for me was very helpful with my anxiety in terms of feeling more at peace uh, with myself. Oh, it's powerful. So powerful, Jenny, because it makes me really think about there. there's a major transition in parenting that I don't feel like I, I recall reading about or hearing about or anything like that. You, cause you, if you, if you are in the position to start out with a baby in some way and then grow, you know, parent that baby into childhood and beyond. Not every parent has this experience, but you know, I think many, many do. And you start out caretaking and you start out knowing this this baby, knowing when they need this and that the other. And there is that parenting where it's like, I I get to think I know you and have seen this from the beginning. And like I this sort of like sense of you kind of being a, a part of me, but also that, you know, I know who you are. And then there's this transition where these human beings are their own people. And there, there's a breaking point where I think it really is super, super important to learn how to notice it within yourself to start to honor that. Mm-hmm. They are their own people. They are yeah. not many yous. They're not, you don't know them better than they do. There might be some ways in which you do, but we can just jump to that so fast and be like, no, I know what you actually mean and not, act, and not let them represent themselves anywhere, you know, things like that. And like how to help parents start to notice the space of transition and get, start to, you know, move along through it. I, I don't think yeah. we really are, we're not raised with these tools in most of us and experience. I don't, haven't seen that many books. Like, I I feel like we need help. Well, and I think what you're naming is, I think it's right on. And I think what we need to notice is when that opportunity is presenting itself and then noticing what about it causes us to be anxious or causes us to want to double down on regressing them back into Mm. this this place where we're, we're a fruit smoothie, where we're all the same. And I know you and I, you know, it's like, then the parents have to deal with their own anxiety. And I think, you know, that's the work is, is owning like, Oh, it makes me anxious to let you go. It makes, I mean, it's really to, I mean, you know, to wear your heart outside of you at all times in the form of a child, you know, and then to start to have to let it, you know, live its life and still have that level of connection. I mean, that is, talk about needing some resilience, you know, around that. But if you can't acknowledge that that's, that it kicks up in you fear or anxiety, it's like, then we can't do anything with it. That has been a game changer for me to just like the simple question of what am I feeling right now? And then just to go further of like, no, 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 try to get more detail with that. What are you feeling? And I remember like a revelation working in therapy about a year ago where I had, I was talking about this time when I had kind of blown up at max and I just like, Oh yeah. Really just, it was early in the morning and I like to have my quiet mornings and he was asking to play video games before school. This 
this was right before the COVID thing hit. And I was like, no, you can't play video games before school. Like, that's not what we do. And he kept nagging. And then I just like blew up at him and just really angry. And he kind of, he's like, that was mean. And and then went off. And I talked about this because it stuck with me for a couple of days. And it was really just doing the work of, no, what were you feeling? And like, what was that? And just get into the emotions, not, not why let's not create a story, just try to get deeper mm-hmm. into what you were feeling. And finally I got to this point where I was like, Oh my God, I was feeling helpless. Like that's why I like, that's why I lashed out at him. It was not him. It, it was not the, all the other things. It was this mm. emotional feeling of helplessness and it was, yeah. Just, and you wow. actually talked to Max about it after, which yeah. I thought was really amazing and something that I, I wish I had known earlier in my parenting is like, you don't have to have all of the answers in a split second. Like mm-hmm. who invented this idea that parents have to like have like immediate comebacks for everything and like know what to do. Like you can pause. You can also come back later and apologize yeah. you can come back later and have, have conversations about it. Not like it's all over Repair. in a, in a yeah. second, you know? So this, this was literally the week before everything closed down for COVID. Uh And so I was like, uh, I I knew I was teaching at the time. I had a couple of classes and I didn't know what was going to happen with those. And I was going to, and there there was all like the whole world felt like just about something bad was just about to happen. So there was an underlying feeling of helplessness. Yeah. So that that was, it was, it was like, I have no idea what's going on and I can't stop it. And and so I was like, okay. Plus a narrative of, you know, being a bad parent. If I let you play video games before, you know, school, I I have emotions around that of, of like, if you play video games before school, I am a bad parent. Like I will be judged harshly by someone somewhere. Oh God. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, yeah. No pressure. Yeah. I know. Right. <laughs> well, yeah. And I was just going to say, you should not play video games before school. <laughs> Fair enough. And you know, and so then Max just kind of unknowingly stepped in that duty, you know, yeah, he, he just yeah, kind of yeah. unknowingly stepped into that helpless feeling. And for you to process that with him is just, I mean, that that's the game changer right yeah. there because oh now, he understands. I mean, that's just great. And in terms of what you were saying, Audra, about, you know, the repair after and this idea that we have to know exactly what we're doing. I tra- you know, I train therapists now and there's this pressure they put on themselves to have these perfect sessions where we know exactly how to respond to someone. And I'm like, no, that is not how life goes. And that is not, so that is not how therapy is going to go. What's great is they come back next week. And we get to talk about it. Yes. Like it's, we, it's just all grist for the mill. Like we get to talk about it. That's the beauty of doing this work every week. Jenny, that's amazing. That's like the slowing down mm-hmm. that it seems like we need to be, be bringing into our, our society and culture in these ways mm-hmm. that I feel completely unexpected to me. I had no idea that therapists have that, feel that sense of pressure. Oh yeah. That we as parents I can imagine feel. though that they would. And what comes up for me is, most of my uh, uh, most uh, impactful therapy encounters have been just another human being bearing witness, just like mm-hmm. just just bearing witness, like yeah. pain or discomfort. What you know, just just see me, me too. Just hear me, <laughs> me too. I was just sharing that with one of my associates who was kind of stressing, you know, stressing out about 
not having had the exact experience that her client had had and her client was super upset and dysregulated and and just feeling like I, I, I feeling like she needed to fix it. And I was remembering a time in my own therapy where I uh, had recently lost my sister-in-law to a horrific disease and it was a, a total trauma and tragedy. And, and I just sat on that couch and wept for 50 minutes and we just sat together and I wept and I, he said one thing at the very end and and to just have that space be held and, and to, to be seen, I will never forget that session. It was profound and, and it really helped me grieve. And, um, you know, so yeah, I, it, we don't need fixing it. Isn't where it's at. That's not going to work and it, we can't fix it. So Jenny, I, <laughs> I've, I've, I've had yeah. um, uh, a, uh, I don't know if this is a full blown realization yet, but that for guys, um, and I, if any dads are listening to this, uh, w- when we're confronted with emotional distress in our family, like we, we, we want to fix it, mm-hmm. like fix it. Like, what is the problem? Can we just fix it? And the realization that I had was, oh my God, fixing is a way of avoiding like it's a way of avoiding mm-hmm. the emotional pain that is happening and allowing it to be processed and expressed. Like you want to avoid the emotional pain. Can I make this go away? And do you think, I mean, would you say that it's also a way to avoid a particular feeling of powerlessness? Oh and my helplessness? gosh. Yeah. Right. Oh my, I, I, yeah, I didn't go that far and Which I, I think appreciate is, that insight. Yeah. Yeah. And I think for, you know, you know, the, like the, the cultural identity, you know, identity of men, um, and this pressure that we, you know, in terms of this, this, um, I think the patriarchy hurts men as much as it hurts women in many ways. And it's this pressure that, that you guys have to have to be in power, you know, that you have to be in a, a state of feeling in power at all times. And, and that's just not true of our human experience. There are going to be times where we just simply are powerless or we are helpless or we are not in control. And if that's, but if that's not okay, you know, if that means something bad about you, I mean, then what a horrible. It's, uh, well, yeah, that, right, that, right. Whole, that whole thing has changed for me where I feel like the real strength and power is in being able to acknowledge the helplessness and express it and uh, name it like that takes a real man (laughs) like come on you're being a baby if you just want to just shove it down repress it avoid it ignore it like come on man let's 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 do this (laughs) i agree that this has been like really life-changing for you um, and in terms of also your view on, on masculinity and fatherhood and, and all of that, it's been really life-changing, but I w- wouldn't you say that these things still pop up and you still need to process them because I mean, oh you're God. still all the time. No, like, I, uh, that's a that's victim of this in, in, in many ways of, <laughs> no, you know, all the time. Yeah. It's, it's, it's just now um, when I'm emotionally activated, I now have tools and I've now practiced it practiced enough to be able to identify, observe what's happening, give it some words, dig a little deeper, give it some even better words, <laughs> and then express it, um, it, cry it out if I, if I have tears, you know, 
if, through if, it. Yeah, just move the energy. And now it goes through so fast. And it's like, oh, that's, that's yeah. it. Now I've identified it. Um, and now I've exp- uh, expressed it. And now we can start to move on. And I just wanted to, to be clear for any fathers, you know, might be listening at some point that it doesn't mean that you're just over it or immune to these things that that everything has changed. It's just that you have the tools to process. And it makes me think, Jenny, that this is probably a really powerful conversation to be had maybe at more length at some time for, for parents, because we're talking about our, like our interrelational worlds together mm-hmm. as a family and we've been talking about our relationships with kids but you know as partners and a, as life partners it really struck me talking about this power and the control and how that's sort of like built in um to how you are uh raised as a as a man um and how that 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 can present and so i know in our relationship at times there's been things that for example justin has not liked various things like in my lifestyle or things that you have had questions or concerns about. I know that I'm probably not alone in this as, as a partner and as a woman. And so I think going even, even going both ways, but to think that it has the tie in the control part and the helpless, helplessness part actually helps me on the other side of it as well to have an understanding that, you know, it's also not necessarily just about me. Is that you don't have to take it personally. Yeah. 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 I think that's, that's a big thing that you just named Audra that I've known that in my own marriage that just by understanding where my partner is coming from in a, you know, not in a defensive way, but in a vulnerable way, then I can access, I don't have to take it personally. I can access some compassion. I can still be upset. I can still have my feelings, you know, it's not one or the other, but I can kind of hold both of like, well, I don't have to vilify her or make it all bad or, Mm, you know, think this, you know, it's just, and I think what you said too, Justin is right on is that we're going to have emotional reactions. We're going to be activated and triggered and, you know, like things happen. I mean, but it's, it's how you move through it, how you're in relationship with it. And it sounds like you've gotten these tools. And I mean, people think sometimes people think that therapists have it all figured out. And it's like, no, I, I get in arguments with my partner. And I, <laughs> right. You know, I, I like can sometimes slip yeah. into road rage and I'm just like, but I have an awareness that I didn't have, you know. Along these lines, Jenny, I'd love to know with our partners, with our family, the, the family unit, what there, I think there's a fine line between, cause we all want the best for our loved ones, be it our parents, our children, our life partners, the extended family, we all want the best. What's, what's that line and how do you grapple with wanting the best for these folks, our loved ones, and then stepping into like control, wanting to see that outcome, wanting, wanting to like have control of the outcome that we see? Like, how do you manage that? I think whenever we're in a controlling mindset or place inside, it's, just, it's, a, it's a moment to stop and check ourselves because the truth is you cannot control your partner. Like you just can't. Now with kids, it's different. I mean, you do have, you know, there, there is some level of control that you need to be having in terms of boundaries and things. And, and you have boundaries with your partner, but it's different in that 
you cannot make them be who you want them to be. And that's true with kids. You can't make them be who you want them to be. And if we're in that headspace, I think that's a moment to, to pause and see what's going on. Usually it means some of my needs aren't getting met in my partnership. Mm. I just try to bring it back to what I do have some say over, which is myself. And so like, what am I needing that I'm not getting? Where is connection getting thwarted? What is it to me if my partner does this or doesn't do it? What is that? Like, like you're doing like that drilling down of like, so, so my partner, you know, makes this choice. What impact is it having? Okay. There's this outside impact, but what's the internal impact? What is is the emotional, like, what are the feelings that come up when your partner does X or when your child does X? When your child does, right, right. You know, and and like that for me has been really big. I've been able to see that, oh, I get get emotionally triggered, I'll just say, around Max's video game time. And to really start to dig into that, like feeling like what is, what is coming up emotionally around that? And it's a lot of um, feelings around being a bad parent that if he's playing video games, I'm bad. So that's about you. Yes, exactly. Exactly. A hundred percent. So then I get to get that little bit of insight that it's like, it's not about his video game playing. Now, the video game playing can be excessive and there are, you know, problems with it, but video game playing as such, that's, that's, that's mine. Like well, that's, and, that's and my stuff. It sounds like you're figuring out where those two exist. So there's a place where there's a boundary with the video games, which is a choice for Max's well being. And then there's a place where it starts to tip into stuff. That's about you. That is not Max's job to fix with whether or not he's playing video games you know, and like, I think another piece of this too is like just plain old frustration tolerance, you know, just like, you know, like with, I mean, in my marriage, and I'm sure my wife would say the same about me, it's like, what are the things that are like deal breakers? Like, what are, what are, you know, and what are the things that I need to just, I, I just need to tolerate that she's different and I'm different from her and that we're not going to do it exactly the Such same way. Such a great way. point. And right. it is frustrating, but there's still all this good here that keeps me in this relationship. And so what do I choose to kind of focus on and, and what then needs to be a conversation, you know, or, and sometimes a fight, you know, sometimes we we need to fight it out, but boy, I don't know about you guys, but I just, my marriage asks so much of me in terms of growing and, and, um, yes, it does. <laughs> But it's like, but there's a richness in it. Like, right when you're in the hard part of it, it blows. But when you get on the other side, don't you just feel like you like climbed a mountain together or something? Hell yeah. Oh my gosh. No, I I, I am uh, more in love today than I've ever been. Aww. And it's, I, the it's work. truly like mm-hmm. it is, yeah. it is the work. It mm-hmm. is. And it's, and it's not, I don't mean it's the work between us, I feel like it's my, it's doing my work that has mm-hmm. opened up um, just a lot of avenues for just deeper connection. And yeah. yeah. And it, I feel the same way with the kids and it does bring me to, there's something that I want to, I, I want to get at and understand a little bit better, Jenny, when it comes to the burgeoning personhood and one's responsibility for oneself. And when we are in these close relationships, we can often overstep these bounds, right? And we're taking responsibility for each other. And so how how do I help my kids 
honor who they are, know that like person, honor who they are. Like they want to take care of themselves. They want to live their best lives. And then how do I respect and trust that? So how do I step out of paternalism? Like we need to have boundaries and we need to teach them. So that's the hard part because it's like, it's incumbent on us to, to show them the ropes, you know, but then that we can kind of often, I feel like overstep that into you know, a, you just need to follow what I say, you know, but I do think that we, we need to honor and respect each other as like autonomous individual human beings as well, who are self-interested and, you know, want to live (laughs) good lives. I mean, what's it like to invite them into that question? Like that's something you guys could figure out together. Yeah. You know, kids need that container. We all need the container. We all need boundaries because they feel good, actually. They, it feels good to know where our edges are and what mm, where you yeah. end and I begin and what 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 is expected. And when that's communicated directly, it feels really good. But I mean, as the kids are getting older, I don't know. I mean, what would it be like to invite them into that conversation of like, you know, we need to have some some rules here. And I'm really interested in in what you're wanting to get out of this. Like what, what do you think you, you, you would like to have happen here? I mean, I like that when they're, when they're, when, I mean, certain, obviously you can't do that at every age, but I think there is a certain age where it's like, you can start to invite their voice into the conversation. I mean, I don't know. What do you, no, I think that you're completely right. You know, and I think that's just like bringing that out, even having the like sentence stems and examples, I think is really helpful for parents. Like what are the questions and what I'm here that I can ask myself? Mm -hmm. I think having those questions of like, how can I invite in this conversation with my kids? I have seen just some beautiful things happen as my kids take responsibility for themselves. Mm -hmm. I mean, Maisie has done the most amazing, it has been an amazing shift for her as, as a child with dyslexia, taking ownership of her school and her progress. Mm-hmm. And it was like a flip of a switch. It was amazing wow. when she took ownership and wasn't just told what to do, but took took it on herself. And her own particular learning strategies. And in her own way, <laughs> you know, yeah. it's the coolest thing. So um, I've learned from just experiencing that with her. And I know that this is something that parents experience because it is that fine line between setting up boundaries and then overstepping them sometimes into control because we don't know what else to do. And we don't, we didn't, we weren't raised with having these conversations. Like we, most of a lot of us were raised with, because I say so, because it's what's best. Yeah. And I think a lot of those moments happen sometimes quickly. And we, we feel that pressure you're talking about having to do it right in the minute. Like, can we time out? You know, like if a kid asks you a question about a boundary, like, and you, you really don't know, it's like, it's okay to be like, let me get back to you on that, you know, or like, this part of it, I can tell you now, and this part we need to talk about more. We need to think it, you know, like not having to have it all figured out, letting it evolve. I mean, you know, with Maisie's relationship to her, you know, dyslexia and things like that, like, let's try this and let's check in around it because we might want to try something else um, that we can be more kind of creative together about it and not having to have some pressure of being a good parent or a bad parent. Oh my gosh. What I'm hearing, Jenny, is stepping out of this reactionary, yeah, reactive way of living into a thoughtful, you know, kind of like slowing down and also a bit more proactive yeah. way yeah. of living yeah. with each other. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of the running joke in the, in my house of like, <laughs> of just being like, 
I don't know. I'm feeling feelings. I'm feeling feelings. I don't know. You know, it's <laughs> I <just love> like, <laughs> and we know it's like, you know, funny and cheesy and, or if the dogs are over, you know, react acting up, it's like, and you're feeling feelings. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Like, feelings have to be felt. Yeah. Uh, That's so good. So, all right. So I do want to segue now into okay. something very cool that Ginny uh, has done for the daily thrive, which is our subscriber only platform for the Family Thrive. And so it is a self-paced course that we'll also do as group-based courses later on. And it's called Loving Your Inner Critic. So Jenny, this is an amazing course. I was so, really, I am so grateful that I got the chance to work on it with you because I learned so much as I uh, as I, you know, put it together onto the platform. Uh, but I'm left, or so I just want to be clear. Um, why do we want to love our inner critic? Um, it seems like, right, we don't like this voice, this chattering voice in our head that, you know, tells us we're not good enough. Why don't we just fight it and tell it to shut up? Because it doesn't work. It doesn't work. I don't know about you. I tried doing that for years, but... <laughs> It just doesn't work. I like to do what works. So, well, first of all, the inner critic is something that we're, we all have. It's a, we're all kind of wired to have it. And um, it's, in, it's individual and in that it looks different and sounds different for each of us, but to have a voice that's there trying to manage us is a very human experience. And it's really there to try to keep us safe. It's just that it's often a very immature voice. It's it's very it can be kind of primitive in its understanding of it's things. It's not particularly sophisticated. It's not particularly sophisticated, no. And it's really like hooked into old beliefs and and fears that are probably been there for quite a long time and have been getting reinforced. And so it's often trying to protect you from rejection you know, big overarching fears like rejection, humiliation, failure, things that feel like it could be annihilating. But if we can be in our more adult brain, especially if we're doing, you know, kind of internal work on ourselves, we start to learn that it's not annihilating. It actually, we can fail and be okay, you know, and failure is actually something we might come to have some gratitude toward. But so anyway, why do we want to love it? Um, We want to just try to uh, be in a different relationship with it. I know I've said that a lot today, but it is just a game changer when you can start to understand something you've always had with you in a different way. And it's like a, the matrix. It's like you take the, which pill is the one you take that. <laughs> right. The other I pill. Think, I yeah, think it's the, the other pill. pill. <laughs> yeah. The red pill. Yeah. you t- And it's just like, Oh, um, and so that would be, you know, kind of the basic of, of why we want to try to, because it's not going anywhere. Oh, that's the other thing I would say. We love to try to kill off parts of ourselves. Like, Oh, I hate, I hate when I feel messy. I'm just going to try and get rid of it. Um, I hate, uh, I hate anger. I'm just never going to be angry. I'm going to kill it. And what happens is we can't, it just doesn't work that way. And that part tends to fester and then it starts coming out sideways. So for example, Justin, I don't mean to make you the yeah, the identified patient here, no, but, um, <laughs> IP, but, uh, if with this helpless feeling, if I hate that helpless feeling, I'm going to try and kill it off. Yeah. And meanwhile, it's sort of silently festering. And then it starts to come out sideways when Max wants to play video games and it feels yeah. like totally it's unrelated, but somehow in there. So 
try as you might to get rid of that helpless feeling, it's there because you're human and sometimes we feel helpless. So, uh, so the critic is not going anywhere. So we might as well uh, stop resisting it and turn toward it and see about being in a different relationship with it. The way the course is laid out, it's so fantastic where we start out with understanding what an inner critic is, and then you take us through step by step. And by the end of it, it's like the inner critic has then turned into this child who was criticized and just wants love and compassion. And by the end of it, you're like, I love this, this little guy. <laughs> I know. Holding I know. holding that child, but, I think is beautiful. The, and the thought of being yeah. in a different relationship, it's really profound to me. I think we, we, gr- we grow up often not realizing that that's even an option. And what you're opening up here is that this is totally an option in so many different facets of our lives. Yeah. It's, it's powerful to allow these voices to be parts and, you know, there's different therapy. This is, this is thought of conceptually in lots of different kinds of therapies. Uh, Internal family systems is all about parts work, Um, you know, object relations. I mean, it's, but anyway, but it's just when you can start to think of it as a part of you instead of you, it's so much more empowering and there's just so much more we can kind of play with and do with it. Yeah. Awesome. I, I, I have no doubt that this course is going to be really powerful for a lot of parents. Cause I think even if maybe in other parts of one's life, uh, the inner critic isn't super loud. Well, it's sure going to get loud when you're a parent of like, you're doing it wrong. You're not enough. You're a terrible parent, you know? So it's, it's, it, it seems like such a, uh, uh, real part of parenting. So I'm excited to launch this, this course. Um, so uh, our our last question before we move into our regular podcasts are kind of final three uh, quick quick hits. Uh, so the, the the last topic, real quick, I wanted to get personal, but we've already gotten really personal. So I'm going to get even more personal. What is what is really at your edge right now in your own mental and emotional wellness journey? Um, it's a, it's a great question. I don't know about you guys, but I have noticed in quarantine, like whatever your issue is, it is right up in your face. Um, yeah. and, and requiring being looked at and known about, uh, like Pema Chodron talks about being pinned to the spot mm. when life pins you to the spot and there is no wriggling away. And I feel like that's been true for, for quarantine. Right. You um, can't go on vacation. You can't go see a show. You can't, right. you can't go right. to the yeah. bar. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel like kind of in terms of psyche, it's the same thing. So whatever I was working with clients around, it's heightened right now. And so for me, this is around um, allowing myself to be, to take up space and to have boundaries. Um, My inner critic, it's funny that this is coming up right now because of this course. I would, I kind of went into that course, like I'm good inner critic. I dealt with that. Like I don't really be, I used to beat myself up really intensely. I mean, like a yelling, cursing voice. And, um, and I really worked, I don't do that anymore. I'm really a lot more tender with myself. What I have noticed though, is that my inner critic has gotten very, very sophisticated in it, it. It does it in this tricky way where it's like, 
there are places where I want to step into who I am and it tells me, oh, that's you're being a narcissist. Like it pathologizes me. Oh so my goodness. Your inner yeah. critic basically went to school with you and learned yeah. all, the, <laughs> like, all, yeah. all the tricks that you Some did. AI inner critic. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and true story. I mean, I'm just going to, I'm just going to put it out there. You know, it, I mean, Audra knows like, I like to be a part-time witch over here. I'm a little, I'm, a, I'm quite woo-woo. And I recently got a tarot reading that was pretty, it was right. I mean, it was so affirming and right on. And the first thing that she named out of the gate was this um, years long, uh, pretty toxic relationship that I came out of with someone who was quite narcissistic. And there's been a big healing around it and a big, you know, all this stuff. And she's like, basically what you did is you, you learned how to say no to those people on the outside and you've internalized it and put it in your head. Oh, um, wow. And and that, that voice oh. is now inside of you judging you. And, and I was like, Oh God, busted. Like I just, <laughs> oh. I was like, Oh, but it's so, it's so subtle and it's not overt. And so I'm doing the work right along with you guys with this course of just like, um, trying to understand it, turn toward it, make friends with it and see the ways it wants me to stay small and quiet. And does that serve anyone or me? And that's definitely a growing edge for me of just, um, Oh, I think, yeah, yeah, I think, uh, a lot of us, it's really powerful to hear that and to hear about how that inner critic can transform with you. Yeah. It's more right, and that you need to keep doing the work. It's like yes. now that you have become nicer to yourself, it doesn't mean the work is done. <laughs> you know that? No, not at yeah. all. And I think it's like the growth I'm trying to do now, or I want to do now, or I am doing now, is really different than the growth. I mean, like you know, in my twenties, it was like survival. You know, it was like I mean, I went. We didn't talk about this, but another part of becoming a therapist was you know I went through very severe suicidality and and. Um, depression and anxiety for a big part of my twenties and early thirties. And, um, it was just survival. I mean, I was just trying to get tools to get out of a life or death feeling inside. And then, you know, being in that for a period of time in your life and career growing and that, and then realizing like, I'm not in a survival mode, but there's still more growth to be done. And then hitting that, hitting that wall and noticing like, Oh, interesting. It's way more sophisticated and, it's trickier, you know, yeah, the, so <laughs> the game has evolved. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay. Let's go into our, our regular three questions for our podcast okay. guests. Audra, we'll just switch off on this. So I'll let you go first. All right. If you could post a big post-it note on every parent's fridge tomorrow morning, what would it say? The fr- I'm just going to go with the first thing that came to mind when, yes. when I heard the question, which is, I am enough. Mm. Mm. Thank you. Thank you. I can use that. I think every parent, mm-hmm. yes, every every parent needs that. In fact, yeah, if you're listening right now, just take a deep breath and <laughs> repeat that. Yeah, but I, <laughs> I will say, enough. can I add on, which is, I am enough. And then the therapist in me is like, but go and figure out what post-it note works for you. It is a big enough post-it note to put the whole thing on, on there. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. know, like take the time to figure out what, what you need and Ooh. then allow yourself Ooh. to have it. I love it. All right. So what is the last quote that changed the way you think or feel? 
Okay. So I always, these questions, I feel this high pressure to like pick the best quote. Absolutely. Nothing uh, so less I, than the best. Yeah. So full disclosure, you guys kind of gave me a heads up. You're going to ask me this, which I appreciate. And I was like, Oh Lord. And I was, you know, looking, I was thinking, and I had this quote and that quote. And I was like, you know what universe, just send me a quote. Cause I'm just like, just but give me a quote like that's because I just can't pick, you know, the best one or whatever. So I was getting out of the shower and I heard my wife clear as day say, you're going to go where you're looking. So you better look where you want to be going. Mm, kind of okay. like eyes on Does the that make sense? Yeah. Oh, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. So I was like, oh my God, is she talking about life? It turns out she was talking about riding a motorcycle, but that's okay. <laughs> a life lesson. Yeah. So yeah, what it yeah. got me thinking about was um, what we were talking about earlier was, you know, if I'm looking about being a bad, you know, having to avoid being a bad parent or a good parent, I mean, that's where I'm going, right? I'm going into this place of good or bad. If I'm looking toward trying to, you know, when I'm upset with someone and I'm looking at, you know, what it is about them that's upsetting me, that is what I'm going to get. That is the, that is what I'm going to see. And that is the feedback I'm going to get in terms of if I'm going in with this question of like, what, what is there to learn here? What's my part here? So I was kind of just taking it into a more sort of like that could be applied in so many ways. If like, if I follow on Twitter, just like smart, kind people who, you know, are nice to each other and have really great ideas, then uh, like my, I, I I have a good time and I feel light and airy when I'm done with it rather than people, you know. But there is this concept is what it relates to for me is this concept that if you keep yourself kind of mired in the rabbit hole of the fear of the path forward, you will go there. Exactly. If you look towards the vision that you're creating, you know, the very real, you know, vision that you're creating, you will go there, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah, that's way deeper than my uh, that's <laughs> Twitter feed. Yeah, I know. And that's that, that concept of you manifest that. So, yeah, agreed. And I think, I guess what I, what it came up for me was that that can be applied to small and big things. Mm-hmm. Like, I think when we think of manifesting, we think of like, I want to have, you know, uh, this amount of money in this, you know, but, but in your relation, like in this conversation that I'm heading into with my child, where am I looking? Mm-hmm. Yep. Am I looking toward connecting and repair? Am I looking toward blame and control? control? <laughs> totally. You know? Yep. I, like, I feel you're that. You're going to go where you're, it, you know, I had a recent yep. experience with someone who texted me and they were upset about something. And, and I just, I got so tricked. I mean, I just got so upset and, and I was like, okay, I slowed it down. I was like, I don't want to text. Let's have a conversation. And I went into that conversation of like, I want to remember, this is my friend. We care about each other. There's a way we can both be happy and we can find a way through. And that's exactly what we did. And I could have gone into that conversation very differently. Um, and I have a feeling, I have, I have a feeling of where it would have gone if I had dr- like drawn my sword, you know, had you drawn so, your sword, gone in defensively, gone in with the list of assumptions and stories, like how yeah. we normally do it. Right. Yeah. Okay. Cause I want to just explore this idea just, just one second, because what has worked for me is to learn, especially over this past year to, uh, go into conversations, go into any sort of interaction, with as few expectations as possible 
and really uh, and like as few assumptions as possible and to just kind of come in with kind of a jazz uh improv mood of like, jazz hands yeah <laughs> like like i mean let's just see what happens here like you know um and so what i'm hearing though is that i i don't know there this quote of yours makes makes me think oh uh, like i should i should have some sort of expectation or i should be going in with an expectation oh interesting maybe more of an intention than an expectation mm, yeah okay maybe well especially in conversations like that it depends on what it is so for example Previously, on a Saturday morning or a Friday night, you would have a complete plan in your head of how everything should run. Yeah. And if things didn't go that way, it would cause difficulty. Right. I would difficulty. have an expectation. I would have and a lot of And now a you've been very open. Just yeah. like, let's see what the night presents. Let's just yeah. see. I'm going to do me. But, yeah. you know, see, <laughs> see what happens, right, yeah. the, this morning. Still going to run to Target, but I'm going to see what happens. Um, but having that tough conversation with your daughter. Yeah to walk into that with an intention that isn't based on these stories and assumptions and defensiveness and guardedness and all of the, the, I think, which relates to the inner credit, the self-protective ego, you know, all of that yeah. stuff, but is walking in with the intention, as you like to say, what is going to serve in connection? What, how am I going to, you know, like learn more about my child? Like yeah. what, it, like it's, it's a different intentionality. Nice. So I still nice. think you can be open. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this, this last question. So we ask, we are going to be asking everybody this question uh, because uh, as, as parents, we can sometimes get to a point where we say, Oh, kids, you know, we're just like this exhaustion and, you know, it's just chore and obligation and spilt milk and all, all this stuff. So we want to just end on this note of like, What's your favorite thing about kids? Like, let's let's focus on something rad about kids. Um, okay, this is a two-parter. So, well, I think I love kids' um, honesty. I just love how they are so honest. And from telling you that you look fat to, um, you know, uh, I just think there's a... Um, a beautiful integrity in that, you know, where they just tell a certain kind of, they just tell their truth. Tell it like it is. Um, they tell <laughs> it like it is. Um, and the other part is I love, I mean, this sounds cliche, but it's true. I really, really love their imaginations. I mean, just, uh, I mean, I remember having a conversation with Max years ago when he was, um, you know, I think he was, he was doing something around narrative work around, like, um, I feel like ninjas were a part of it and, yeah. and his understanding of, of the how bad it was guys and the, the bad guys yeah. and the tumor. And like, I just was like, I just loved sitting there listening to him tell me his, this story and, and this, un, the way he was making sense of it and understanding it and living it. And I was just like, it's ingenious, you know, it's just ingenious. And that, so there's that, that creativity and that imagination is just, in, it's inspiring and it's, um, I think it's ingenious. There, there's something we can all learn from it. So that's my favorite. I just love being around kids. Just like at my, one of my favorite jokes is by this four, a four-year-old little girl I met once. And she was like, what's purple and sits on the bottom of the ocean and goes click, click, click. And I'm like, what? And she's like a four-door grape. 
<laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> of course. It's a four-door of course it does. Yes. Like, I'm like, yes. I have no idea what that is. But that, I see so it. Rad. I see, I see it. it. Yes, right. oh, yes. yes. I just saw that me, too. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I'm just like, amazing. Amazing. Beautiful. Jenny, do you... Speaking of that, I, I couldn't agree more. And it makes me think of Sir Ken Robinson, um, who passed away, I think, uh, just last year, uh, not too long ago, and his work on on creativity and how our educational systems often just squish it. You know, we're yeah. not fostering it. Not valued. But do you remember when... I, I'll just say this. I remember when my imagination started to wane. Mm. And I remember feeling grief around it as mm. like a probably 11, 12 year old, you know, being like, I used to see whole worlds with my Legos and be fascinated with it. And now I want a sweater for Christmas. Like this mm. is a little sad, you know, it's sad. It's going away. Mm-hmm. Um, do wow. you, I mean, you're an artist, but I'm wondering if you have any feelings around your childhood imagination with something that you appreciate in kids. What, what about for you personally, someone who was once a kid? I spent so much time by myself and I created worlds. Um, and I do love that part of myself. I think it was, uh, when I look back to her, I think like, what a cool little kid in a lot of ways. You oh, know, I, just, love that. I love that. But in terms of like when it started to wane, when you said that the first thing came to mind, I mean, for me, I remember, um, in high school making these ridiculous videos. So video cameras were like, not common and we happen to have one. And so turning in videos, you could get, I mean, now it would just be like considered phoning it in. But at the time <laughs> yeah. I could get out of writing papers by making oh videos. You know? bad. So it was, yeah. It's brilliant. And I remember doing a video about the Scarlet letter and um, it was stupid and, you know, not hilarious, but hilarious to me. And I wrote my friends in and my friends got scared. They weren't going to get an A because I, the teachers weren't impressed or something. And everyone just abandoned ship. Uh, And I remember that moment of just feeling like I was the only one standing behind this creative idea and feeling like everyone were, was mad at me and hated it. And I, and I do think that that was a time where I started to start to tuck that way, that part of me away, that part of me that was a little bit more daring and a little more out there and a little more risk-taking in terms of my creativity. I, that is a, that's a moment I won't forget that I think I kind of was like, Oh, this maybe doesn't work. Oh this isn't my gonna- gosh. That's feels really monumental. It feels really big to me to hear that. And it makes me think of how many of us have these moments where we are standing strong and tall in this space. And we, it's like the inner critic, as you mentioned, is there to make us, uh, makes us smaller to make us safer. Mm -hmm. And in some way. Right. And so that's one of those first experiences of just of of feeling like I've got to go smaller. I can't stay this big. Yeah. And I think I will add that, the choice for me, and this is a choice that I think has been a theme in my life and, and true for most people is, you know, the child will always choose attachment. The child mm. with, within yeah. us will always choose attachment. And for me, it was like, I would rather be in attachment with my friends and my school and my teachers. If I have to choose between myself and my creativity and my vision and attachment, I'm going to pick attachment. And that's what we as humans do that every single time. And this is where we can, we can with 
you know, in, in certain situations, we can kind of, we can abandon ourselves um, if we don't oh, have awareness. Also give that. ourselves grace when we do abandon ourselves to know yeah. that, you know, it wasn't because we weren't yeah, whatever yeah. principled or, or whatever the thing yeah. may be that millions comes up for of you, years but, of evolution. Yeah, you know, the lone gazelle is a dead gazelle type of exactly. thing. <laughs> I was a dead gazelle, Justin. I, mean, I was like looking at a B plus and not an A and uh, social ostracization. Yeah, yeah I was a dead gazelle. Oh, oh, Jenny, thank you, thank for you sharing so that, much Jenny. for this talk. I just want to state the intention to have you as a recurring guest. Please. I think I think there's so much to talk I about. I love that. Yeah. I could talk I, with you guys all day. Are you kidding me? Like I, I love have so this. many questions, Jenny, and so many different things I want to explore. Like so many different things. Hey, thanks for listening to the Family Thrive Podcast. If you like what you heard, please subscribe tell two friends and head on over to Apple Podcasts or anywhere you listen to podcasts and give us a review. We're so grateful you've chosen to join us on this Family Thrive journey.